when we're done with love, we've mastered it, right? Just dominated, now we move on. Thriving in Babylon. Let me, let me ask you as we start this uh, morning and this sermon series, can you think of a time when you felt out of place, where you felt far from home? In fact, that's the title of today's sermon, Far From Home, where you were just, you, you, you didn't have your people or uh, you just felt uh, pangs of loneliness and change, uh, of tumult, of just not feeling like... Uh, you were inside where you were supposed to be. And uh, I want you to think about the world in which we live in. All of us live in this same world. We got a lot of uh, differences among us, but we all live in the same world and we all experience to some extent this, culture shifts, where underneath us things are changing. The world today that we live in is not the world of yesteryear. Things are changing and things are changing fast. Those who study change talk about the incredible rate of change. It's not incremental, it's exponential, and it's happening uh, so fast it can be a flurry uh, for us. So there is cultural shifts like the tectonic plates of an earthquake. Uh, Susan was here in the front row at the 930 and uh, keeping her eye on me, and I, I shared just briefly about how we've experienced some earthquakes together, actual earthquakes where the, where the, the land is moving underneath you, and that's what's happening to us in our world today. We, we experience cultural shifts, but we also need to realize that we live in a world where the culture is shouting at us. There's cultural shifts and cultural shouts. We're being bombarded with different messages of this is what you should believe. This is what you should try and buy and where you should travel and the person that you should become. You're not enough until you live this way or adopt this. And we're being shouted at uh, in endless ways. So the cultural shifts and cultural shouts at us, but also this is kind of the kicker. Culture shapes us. Uh, Romans 12 is a popular passage. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Forget that last part, even though it's probably the most important. But this, we live in a world, Eugene Peterson of the message paraphrase of the Bible says, it's trying to squeeze us into its mold. So culture shifts under us, culture shouting at us, and culture is seeking to shape us. This sermon series that we're merely introducing today, I want it to be for two groups of people. I want it to be for people uh, who aren't following God, for people who aren't sure, for people who may think they have to have everything figured out. And let me just say this, my faith means the world to me. I'm a very flawed and imperfect person, but my faith means everything to me. And let me tell you, I don't have it all figured out, but I know who to trust. I know who to follow. And it's incredible peace that he gives us in the midst of all the changes to know somebody that's, that's sovereign. And we're going to see the sovereignty of God. I want to challenge you to think that even though you may feel forgotten, even though you may feel like that nobody's on the throne of this series, this life of Daniel in captivity, I think can be good for you to think about God working in surprising ways in surprising places that we can see the fingerprint of God. That's my hope for you, that we will invite you to surrender your life to the sovereign God. The second group, I want to talk to those of us who are already following God. I hope Thriving in Babylon will help you live with more courage. Not to be weird and obnoxious, but to be distinct and different and to rest in the goodness of the gospel. When we talk about things that are... Um, shifting around us, there's really a few responses that I've noticed that we have kind of gut reflex. And I wonder where you are. If you're in a group and you're studying this sermon series over these next five weeks of October, I hope that you'll uh, talk about this. But some people with cultural shifts, they freak out. Oh my goodness, look at look what the world's coming to. I heard somebody say one time, don't, Christian, this is for Christians, don't sit around and talk about, oh, look what the world's coming to. Talk about the one who came into the world. 
I mean, we, we can spend a lot of time. And I, you know, I've asked my wife as I get older, I'm not old, but I'm kind of moving kind of, you know, into that category. But I've, I've asked her to keep me accountable. I don't want to be the old man when people come over to my house. I'm telling kids to get off the yard, you know, yelling at the neighbors and talking about, look what the world's coming to. I want to have a testimony of the one who came. I want my life to mirror a Savior who wipes the slate clean. I had the joy just a couple of weeks ago of leading someone to faith in Jesus to say, you are forgiven. The gospel is such good news. No matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, hey, here's our Savior. Let me tell you about the one who came into the world. And even though religious people are very bad at this, Jesus said, John 3, 17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to bring life to the world, uh, to, to save the world. And that's the one that we want to talk about. But some people freak out. Br the late British theologian John Stott said this about the world. He said, uh, don't ask what's wrong with the world. The diagnosis has already been given. Rather ask, hey, where's the salt and light? And that's the invitation for the Christian. Hey, the diagnosis has been given to the world. You and I can let that alone. Uh, that's in God's hands. He's the one judge and one lawgiver, James chapter 5. But what our role is what? Is to be salt and light, to bring some little sliver of redemption, some uh, rebuilding and renewing into this world to partner with the Holy Spirit to be able uh, to do that. So some people uh, freak out about the world. Look what the world is coming to. Let me ask you this. Is it, uh, should the Christian be concerned? Yes. Should a Christian be thoughtful? Yes. Should a Christian be burdened and heavy-hearted? Absolutely. But should a Christian ever be pessimistic, negative, cynical, or hopeless? Look at me. I want you to get this right. Never. We shouldn't be. Now, I know you're going to have those moods and bouts of that. I do in my own life. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. And even though we have moments of looking and going, oh my goodness, uh, we don't have to live in that. Uh, we need to be thoughtful and we need to be uh, concerned and we need to be he heavy hearted and burdened at the world we're living in, but not cynical and not hopeless and not pessimistic and not negative. So we don't need to, to freak out. I'm up in your grill, aren't I? And we, we also, another uh, way that we uh, respond to the cultural shifts is we just say, you know what? I'm just going to blend in. I'm just going to be like the people around me. The pressure of this world conforms you to be like everybody else. Now I could get very quickly into parent mode right here and talk to, uh, talk to us like parents talk to their, to their kids. One of the things I've always said to my kids is they got bigger and went out on their own, went, went, you know, went, went out the, the door going somewhere. I would say to them, hey, be a leader. That was one of the things, hey, be a leader, be a leader. And I want to encourage you to think about that, to not to blend in. The power to make a difference in the world comes in the freedom to understand that we need to be different. And the only way that we'll make a difference is to be distinct and to be different. Not to be weird and not to be obnoxious, but to be distinct and be different. Not to look down our nose at other people, but to be bold, to be courageous, and rest in the goodness that the gospel gives us. The third one is the good one. It's the response of holding on. It's uh, having a faith, finding a faith, and holding on to that faith. And that faith provides you meaning through whatever you're going through. You suffer and go through hardship. I suffer and I go through hardship. Romans 5 puts it this way. Here's a promise we can cling to. Suffering can produce endurance. Endurance
endurance can produce proven character. Proven character can produce hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God will never graduate from love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. We can hold to this faith and see the invisible hand of God working. Even though God's not visible or tangible or audible, we can, we can know that he's working by faith. We can see his sovereignty in our lives and in the world uh, today. So we think about uh, Daniel. Let, and I tell you what, yeah, here, here's a, a promise that uh, is shared in the 12th chapter. We're going to walk through chapter 1 real fast today, a, a quick jet tour. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And here's what we see in this young man named Daniel. We see in Daniel a guy who was carted off. He was, we would say, kidnapped. He was taken away into Babylonian captivity. Most all of the Bible is written in the Holy Land region. It's written in, you know, with God's people being together, the gathering, the assembly, of being together. But Daniel, this book that we're going to walk through is very unique in that it, the whole story unfolds outside of the region. It, it, it unfolds in hostile enemy territory as Daniel is taken away. I hope that you'll be inspired by Daniel. Here's one reason why. And man, for, you know, people my age, anybody really, but here's the great thing. Daniel was unique in the Bible. He was unique in the Bible in that about only 20% of the people in Scripture finished well. Only about 20% of people in God's Word finish well. 80% don't. And we see failure. It's what I love about the Scriptures. We see it in Moses. We see it in David, we see it in Peter, we see it in Paul. They failed in colossal ways, but what do we know? Redemption. We see the redemptive hand of God. Let me speak that over somebody now. Even though you might be in the midst of great failure, even though you may have been embarrassed and you're wondering uh, what's next, look, there's redemption in the gospel and scripture is replete with it. But even though we see failure after failure, we see God redeeming people. We see a host of people who didn't finish well. Daniel, y'all, was just faithful all along the way. We meet him as a teenager. He was about 14. Bible scholars estimate that he was about 14 or 15 years old when we meet him. What were y'all doing at 14 or 15 years old? Maybe you probably shouldn't say in church, right? But here's Daniel and his, his uh, friends, and they're kidnapped and they're carted off. I hope you'll be inspired by his integrity and his courage, his wisdom and humility. I also think that you'll, be, that you'll be able to identify with him. The thing about Daniel is he wasn't a prophet, a priest, a king, or a pastor. He was just a dude. He was just a young dude. He's in the marketplace. He had a job. Most of you, uh, I'm talking to pretty much everybody, unless you're on church staff here or visiting from another church and you're a minister, but you're not um, a professional Christian. And sometimes it's easy for us to look at the Bible and think, oh, so-and-so was a prophet. They were a priest. They were a king. Uh, they were a pastor. They were an evangelist. They were an apostle. All these religious titles. So, you know, this is what was happening for them, and I can't really connect to them. But Daniel gives you somebody to identify with. He's just a guy in the marketplace. So I hope you'll be inspired by who he is. Now, we're introduced to this uh, city. We're introduced to this empire Babylon. We're introduced in the book of Daniel to the Babylonians. 
And I want to be clear from the outset that we are here going to look at a map. We're going to talk about the history, but we're not just talking about a city. We're not just talking about an empire. We're really talking about a spirit of Babylon that is, that's in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Let's consider a couple of places. Consider Genesis chapter 11. Anybody know what happened in the 11th chapter of Genesis? It's the Tower of Babel. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. That's where it went wrong. Nothing wrong with uh, great buildings and architecture. Let's make what? A name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth and God had a response come let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech so from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city they stopped here's the spirit of Babylon it's true then and true now the spirit of Babylon is a spirit of sin pride and rebellion where man is put at the center and God is on the peripheral that's the spirit of Babylon Revelation at the end, by the way, I think there's two, 260 plus references to this in the scripture. Again, we're not talking just about a city or an empire. We're talking about a spirit, an anti-God, a spirit that's antagonistic toward God. He spoke with a loud voice. This is angel number one. There were three in Revelation 14. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now the second angel and another, a second angel follows saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Why would the writers of scripture talk about Babylon uh, hundreds of years after its downfall? Empires come and go. People come and go. Nations, uh, they come and go. It just, it just happens. I saw something yesterday about an old, an old man. It was a a little video of an old man, he was crying. He looked like he was in his 90s. He was wearing this Argyle sweater and he was just crying. And the caption underneath him said, uh, the doctor just told me I only have five days to live. It's a pitiful scene. He's just crying and crying. The next caption uh, shows him laughing. His hands are up in the air and he says, uh, I killed the doctor and the judge gave me 30 years. Uh, we don't really know how long we have, but every life comes to an end. Every person, every old person, even some young people, we just don't know that day. Uh, kingdoms come and go. Empires crumble. And that's what happened to the Babylonians, just like the Assyrians, just like the Egyptians, just like the Persians. Those empires ended. But this one lives on with this metaphor. And so the spirit of Babylon is sin and it's pride and it's rebellion. It's when we willfully, volitionally turn from God and say, I'm going to do things my own way. Now, um, the spirit of Babylon grips us, I think. I think there are different strategies. So let's talk, real talk here. I think one strategy of the spirit of Babylon is, that's used against us is separation. Daniel was carted off. He was kidnapped. He was taken from his people. He was taken from his friends. You and I are at our worst when we're not with people that we love. You and I need everybody. I don't care if you're an extrovert or introvert. We all need to have a few good people around us. What would Solomon say? If uh, Walk with the wise and you'll become wise. Uh, walk with the fools and you'll become a fool. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, hey, bad company corrupts good morals. That's just not for a student pastor to tell ninth graders. That's you and I too. Bad company corrupts good morals. You have to be careful. And so the enemy, one of the ways the enemy works in this spirit of Babylon, this spirit of sin and pride and rebellion and pulling people away from him is to separate you from good people. 
Have you ever noticed that you do dumb things when you're around dumb people? I could, I, I've been, uh, Susan can tell you, I've told her stories in our 27 years of marriage. She's probably witnessed some uh, in our, at least our first years of marriage. Um, but look, I did some dumb, dumb things. I had the police come to my house when I was like in sixth grade because I did a couple of dumb things and um, I was with dumb people. And so here is this separation. Here is Daniel being removed from the people that have influenced him positively in his faith. Another thing that, another strategy the spirit of Babylon uses against us is the strategy of deconstruction. This is a, a rethinking of the family. This is an attack on human sexuality. This is a the spirit of the world saying, this is not what God really intended. Let's redefine it. Let's usher new things in uh, for a modern age. Daniel is carted off and he's around eunuchs. Okay. We got kids in the room. We'll keep this uh, rated G, but uh, I text Jake Cole. He's our um, operations director at the church. He always, when I'm preaching, he always sends me a message really early, like the sun's barely up. And he's like, Robert, what do you need today? Do you need anything uh, for, for the services, anything for the stage, you need anything at all. And I, I, I told him I was good. Give me a black bar table on the stage and I'm, I'm good. But then I texted him back and I said, I'm going to have you, uh, I'm going to have you, I'm going to call on you in, in church today and have you uh, describe what a eunuch is. And he said, great, I'll have visual aids and a laser light pointer. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I've got this. I'll be, I'll be vague with no visual aids, but a eunuch is a man who's been castrated. A eunuch is a male who's been emasculated. The spirit of Babylon throughout history and in our day today is an attack on healthy expressions of human sexuality and family and gender. It is an attack on that and we see Daniel being carried away. Now we don't know exactly what happened to Daniel related to this uh, but we do know that he was among those who were confused uh, about their sexuality, who were uh, taught and instructed to become asexual. There's a third strategy that is used in the spirit of Babylon, and that is of indoctrination. They were carted away, and as you'll see in Daniel 1 in just a moment, they were entered into, they were mandated into a three-year school. It wasn't just a program to learn about Babylon, it was a program to indoctrinate them to become Babylonians. So these four men, these teenagers, could you imagine, far away from their home, new environment, new people, new role, and a new name. They were given a new name. This weekend, as I was thinking about this spirit of Babylon, this metaphor used 260-something times from Genesis to Revelation about our sin and rebellion and our pride, I thought of this old, old clip from a guy named Paul Harvey who decades ago said, if I were the devil, the audio is not good, but watch it with me, if you will. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me. 
Our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want it until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Separation we see in this story, deconstruction, indoctrination we see. Let me ask you if you're a Christian. Do you think the goal is to take our country back for God? Or do you think it's to walk with God in a godless place and time? The question is an important one, and we can swing a bat at a hornet's nest and go after each other with our disagreements. But can I suggest, and I want to do it each week in this five-week series, that we're not living in Jerusalem anymore. We're living in Babylon, and we're living as exiles like Daniel in a hostile culture. Yes, be patriotic. I just spent 10 days in Africa. I loved it. But I also am glad to be back. And it's given me an appreciation for the great big world that God has created. But I love America and I want to appropriately promote patriotism. I also don't want to suggest that you should be apolitical. Also, I don't have a crystal ball for our nation and what's next. But I will say that we do better by thinking not let's take our country back for God, but let's walk with God in the midst of a hostile culture where it is, it's a godless time and a godless place. And so we're going to learn a bunch from this young guy, Daniel, just getting our feet wet, just a few more minutes this morning. Uh, let's go past that. Here's a map. You see the Babylonian Empire. Remember the Egyptians and the Persians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, later the Greeks and the Romans. These were the ancient Near East of empires that existed in that time. 
the Mac Daddy at the, at the time of this writing had been the Egyptians. But here comes Babylon, and they've got the men, and they've got the horses, and the bows, and the chariots. They've got the ammunition. They've got the men to make it happen. And they begin their pillage. They begin uh, their plan for world domination. And Bab- Babylon attacks Egypt in a battle there. You see, it actually occurs north there, um, not far from Lydia. And it spills all around. But notice for Babylon to attack Egypt, there's another little nation in the way, and that's the nation of Israel. And Israel had been allied with Egypt. So when Babylon is becoming the super world power, what do they do? They take a step, stop into Jerusalem. And here, that's where we pick up. In the midst of dislocation of problems, we pick up Daniel 1.1 right here. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. He besieged the city. If you besiege a city, do you know what that means? It means you barricade around it. What does that mean? Let's be clear. People can't come in and people can't come out. Food can't come in and food can't come out. This is where our story begins. Think of all the people who lived in the towns and villages and hamlets around the very populated Jerusalem. When they heard about the Babylonians, what did they do? They ran into Jerusalem because they have city walls. But your city wall does no good if it's besieged. And so this was the environment that the Babylonians foisted upon the world. And this is what's happening. Verse 2, the Lord handed... King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God, the articles of the temple, many versions of the Bible say, Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Notice, I I pause for effect, the Lord handed them over. God's fingerprints are all throughout this story. Can I just say that the spirit of Babylon can possess us? The spirit of that kind of sounds freaky. I'm usually not freaky, so stay with me. But the spirit of Babylon, the sin and the pride and the rebellion, it's not necessarily just out there for pagans. It can happen to us too. And listen, if you're saying no to God in some area he's leading you, I want to tell you today, don't continue to harden your heart because it's harder and harder. If he's calling you to lay it down and surrender and be obedient in this area, listen to me, do it. Do that because the Lord, he doesn't promise to always protect you. And in this story, the Lord handed them over. Is God gracious in this? Absolutely. But the Lord handed them over. He was tired of the sin. He was tired of the pride. He was tired of the rebellion. They kept turning away from him. Now the articles, uh, the vessels from the house of God have to do with, there's descriptions in the Old Testament about this kind of stuff. But it would be like, I don't know, let's just play, say hypothetically, you were in a sports team rivalry, and I don't know, just hypothetically, your rival and you would play a game of football, and uh, the winner would take, I don't know, uh, an egg, a golden egg, let's say, just hypothetically, and you would win the game, and you would take that egg back to your town and put it in a case and say, we are superior than the other team. Look at the, look at the prize, look at the vessels from the house of the Lord, the articles of, from the temple, and in, in its essence, that's what was happening then. They're saying, hey, Our God is better than your, our gods, by the way, polytheism, is better than your God. Your God is weak. Your God is unable to provide. Your God cannot rescue you. Stop for a second there because you and I live in a world where we're going to have hardship and we're going to be confronted. Do we live on our own and turn away from God? And we're going to be confronted with that very question. 
Is our God weak and anemic and powerless? Or is, is his arm, his outstretched arm, able to save? Can he be in the midst of this mess? So, three questions, three God questions if you were living in Israel in 605 BC. Is God through with us? Can he be trusted? And how can he be at work in this mess? This story, clearly ancient, vastly different from the world in which you live, presents us with what we live in our day. The same three questions in the middle, if you're in the middle of a mess, if you feel displaced, if you feel like the culture shifted too greatly, if you're in the midst of suffering, the same questions. Look, I'm not immune from this myself. Can, is God through with us? Ever thought about that? This question often comes after a failure. It comes in the midst of suffering. Can he be trusted and how can he be at work in this mess? There's Nebuchadnezzar. Next week we're going to talk about the dream statue of Nebuchadnezzar. The gold and the head, the silver, the bronze, the iron and the clay and what those mean. He asked Daniel to interpret a dream for him and there was specific skill that Daniel was given. Pretend you're a teenage boy and you've got three friends and you're kidnapped, you're carted off. New land new language, new customs. This is uh, Babylonian uh, Acadia. Some of you knew that, right? You're like, don't insult me, preacher. I can obviously recognize that. Look, anybody, can anybody read this? Anybody at all? Uh, nobody, right? Guess what? Daniel couldn't either. Could you imagine? So he's put on a three-year program where he's got to learn, and they weren't just, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just educating them about Babylon. He was educating them to become Babylonian. They're given new names. Uh, if you went to Sunday school, you know these names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Remember, Daniel is Jewish. No pork, no shellfish, a lot of civil and ceremonial uh, religious things that he was committed to at the time. And so there is tension. Daniel is walking with this tension. There's perks if you're going to be in the king's court, but there's also great tension. Well, what is Daniel uh, to do? Here's his friends. If you went to Sunday school, you're like, I don't recognize any of those names on the left. But if you went to Sunday school, you recognize those names on the right. Where is Jesus in the story? Any guesses? Anybody know? You've got to find Christ in all of Scripture. Every Old Testament, you've got to find Christ. Jesus is going to be the fourth man in the fiery furnace. And here, these men... These boys start their new life. Daniel, and I love this phrase, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. There's God working again. God handed them over, but God granted favor. God is at work in surprising ways and surprising places. He said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigns your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner that the other young men your age, other than the young men your age, you would endanger my life with the king. What's he saying? He, the man assigned over Daniel is saying, hey, it's okay if you want to risk your life for your faith, but I don't want you to risk my life for your faith. So they get on this diet that's a best-selling book in our day. Anybody ever done or heard about the Daniel diet? Water and vegetables. That'll, that'll make your face look thinner if you uh, hang with that. Daniel is learning, and he feels it, that he's a citizen of two kingdoms. Hey, Christ follower, this is a tension that you and I should feel all the time. We're citizens of two kingdoms. I want to challenge you 
to do your job well, to find your calling and put your heart in it, to live differently because you're called to live in this world and to live in this world with integrity and wisdom and courage and humility. But you're not created for this world. You're to ultimately assign another kingdom and to follow Christ. And so if you live in this world, you're going to face this tension. Here's how it comes out in our language and our experience. You're going to walk through this world. And you're going to say, okay, 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 not okay. Let's say you're a sales rep and your boss is out of town. Your company's out of town. The sales rep calls you or, or the sales manager calls you, your boss. And he or she says to you, hey, we're having this convention down in New Orleans and I want you to go. And I want you to entertain some clients, and I want you to go down there, and I want you to represent us well. You've got it in you. I need you to do this down in New Orleans. So I want you to go to dinner. I want you to take them out. I want you to have drinks um, at a strip club, and I want you to do this. So you, as a Christ follower, are probably going to say, okay, 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 not okay. Listen, I'm not judging you. Let me give you some language to help you. I'm not judging you. You do you, but that's not what I am to do. That's not what I'm called to do. You're going to say, okay, okay, okay. I'll do what the boss says. I'll go to New Orleans. I'll entertain clients. I'll take them out to dinner, but not okay. This doesn't just apply to sales reps. It applies to eighth graders. A friend invites you over. Hey, Friday night, let's have pizza. Let's play video games. Let's go down the street to Justin's house. Justin's parents will be out of town. His older sister is watching him. She don't care what they do. You respond as an eighth grader. You say, okay, okay, I'll come over. Okay, pizza. Okay, video games. Okay, Justin's house for a little bit, but not okay to spend the night and lie about what we did because my parents may find out and I'm going to know. Either way, I'm going to know. And Daniel's a young guy. And Daniel's faced with this because he's living amidst two kingdoms. And you are, if you're a Christian, and I am. And that's the world that we're living in. Let me roll through this very fast. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. That's only vegetables and only water. So I want to challenge Fonder Church, everybody in here, to take this 10-day challenge. Just kidding. Um, you'll do it? Who said that? You're not going to do it. No, you're not going to do it. There's your parents. They disapprove. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. I love this. Daniel is teaching us a huge lesson that we need. You can disagree. You can be around people with different convictions and you can still be influential. You can hold to your convictions, but you can do it in a way where you respect people on the other side. How great is this? How needed this is in our day. He agreed with them about this, tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating at the king's uh, table. So the guard continued to remove their food and their wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. God gave. God handed over God provided the finger work of God. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding, on and on. Daniel also understood his visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. This is the walkthrough. This is the test. They had been uh, through the program. They had uh, been at the king's table. And then he offered, Daniel in his wisdom, offered the test drive. And then this is the final exam. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
So they began to attend to the king in every manner of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus, by the way, is Persian. So here's the, here's the recap of this morning. Uh, we meet Daniel as a teenager. We meet him at the foot of tragedy and great loss. And we see the sovereignty of God in the midst of his circumstances. And we see a young man who had determined to not defile himself, a young man determined to live with integrity. You know, if you, if you have this bound up in you and you have this spirit of determination, the odds are you're going to finish well. And we see this in the life of Daniel. We, we get to know Daniel for 60-something years of his life, and he walked with integrity, and he influenced people. God gave him favor, and he can do that to you. He can do that, and he wants to do that in your life to give you wisdom, to give you boldness, to give you courage if you walk with humility, and he'll open doors, and he'll give you favor. Look, Daniel, this plays out in the midst of a hostile culture, which I believe we live in, and this plays out in the midst of the marketplace of which most of you go uh, Monday through Friday, and I hope there'll be lessons for you in the weeks ahead uh, as we look at this life and what a life surrendered to God looks like. Let's have the team come up, and as they get set, let me pray for us before we close. Ask God today to minister to you in the weeks ahead, and I want to ask you to open your eyes over the next several weeks to think about what it's like to be a citizen of two kingdoms, what it's like to walk in this world, but to live for another kingdom. And ask God to help you with the tension of what that looks like. And I want to ask you to ask God to help you be able to say in this world, okay, 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 not okay. And that you would take a stand and you would have boldness to not defile yourself. In a world that wants to squeeze you into its values and its perspective and pull you away from God, that you would stand firm and you would hold on rather than freaking out or blending in, you would hold on to your faith. Lord, would you bless this word now and uh, these weeks ahead? Would you help us as we look at rolling up our sleeves and learning to live amidst godlessness and that we would be careful to love everyone and to live with winsomeness in this world, to see you give us relationships with people who don't possess a faith who are captivated by other religions and ideas but Lord you would use us to make a difference because they can see the difference in us in Jesus we pray Amen